Talking Con, a cup of tea with an Englishman in San Diego. Season 7, Episode 30, Chris Ryle. ourselves a cracking show today i think um i'm gonna try and get through as much as i can like i say technical issues so we weren't able to do the countdown we weren't able to do lots of other bits and pieces but we do have a, a great person to talk to and that's really all you, all you need really when it comes to a, uh, a stream like this uh please welcome chris ryle hello chris how are you doing sir i'm good our connection seems fine so uh you had or behind you uh, well, yes. I mean, I'm, I mean, I've got one or two nerdy things, just one or two. As um, we all just, should. Absolutely. Um, I have a, a couple of Funkos, which, you know, is just kind of like the default um, thing that we have as nerds, sure. isn't it? <laughs> Although I, I'm waiting to find the, uh, the kind of uh, comic industry person that just goes, you can get those bloody things away from me. <laughs> I can imagine. You know, I, that... I never, I never quite got the bug, but I did just recently buy the uh, Samuel Laban from Duran Duran Funko. So I have he and Lemmy from Motorhead, um, <laughs> kind of staring at each other upstairs. Because I, I mean, just to explain to uh, one or two people, uh, the first time uh, I met Chris in person was when he came over to Shrewsbury for Comicslopia. Uh, was that last year? I mean, yep. it's feeling it like feels like five years ago. It Feel like five years ago. It feels like an eternity now. Um, but uh, the joy of that particular meetup was the fact that we didn't also just talk about comics because we kind of covered that in a panel that we did together, uh, which it was uh, Chris's uh, spotlight panel of the weekend. But also, and we got we just... to sit and have a bite. You know, we got to have yeah. a civilized bite of food too, which was uh, always welcome. Shrewsbury is not the worst place in the world to find yourself. Um, it was wonderful, it, yeah. It was okay, it was nice, it was good. And it was just nicely overcast as well, it wasn't too hot. Okay, admittedly, there was some rain on occasion, but you kind of you got through it and it was good. But no, um, we kind of had all sorts of chats. And to be fair, uh, I also had um, a moment of severe jealousy when uh, we kind of were talking about uh, concerts and artists that we've been to see. And Chris just name dropped all of these concerts and I just went that's just not fair that's, that's yeah not I'm fair. uh like everybody that loves live music I'm suffering right now like I had I had a lot of tickets in the queue that had to be uh either moved back or refunded or just otherwise lost is that the kind of thing that you're, you're really missing at the moment when it comes to the lockdown because uh um I mean is it live music or are you carry are you a karaoke head as well or no, I mean, conventions, I think, is probably the only time I really uh, go down that road anymore because nobody wants to hear this voice, you know, trying to uh, carry a tune. But, I mean, it's all the it's all the things. It's going to comic book stores. It's going to music shops. It's seeing live music. You know, it's it's all of my geek pursuits uh, sort of put on hold for now, like all of us have had to experience. But, yeah, I mean, live music is certainly a thing that I, I do as frequently as possible. So, um, yeah, you know, I'm eager to get back as soon as we can all get back in a safe way. Do you play an instrument still? No. I mean, I have a <laughs> guitar, you know, I, I, and it's been sitting in the corner for a while. I, uh, I took it out and I tuned it up and I queued up a couple, you know, 
lessons online and then that's as far as I've gotten. So <laughs> it's one of those things where you're like, well, now I have time, although you don't really have time. Um, someday, someday. <laughs> so, I mean, how has the lockdown been treating you? Because, I mean, I know it was your, your birthday at the beginning of the month. Uh, happy, yeah, happy and, belated for that. Oh, yeah, thank but, you. Uh, I mean, obviously lockdown had happened right at that point. Were you able to kind of celebrate in any kind of style? No, but that's fine. You know, um, it, it's more of just, it's the work thing. Like the home thing is fine. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm surrounded by music and comics and uh, family members who I like spending time with and all of that. So that part's fine. It's just, you know, for all of us, the, the industry is going through a, a real crisis right now. And so it's been kind of grueling in that regard. Just, you know, there's no there's sort of no removal from work at this point. Um, even in the past, like if I was working all day and night, there was still that like sort of physical transit time going from the office to home. And now it's, it's just kind of an ongoing around the clock kind of thing. You know, there's no, there are no more hours or days. It's just uh, trying to figure out the best way to move forward for all of us. Well, I mean, I think it's probably a good idea <laughs> since we kind of did skip all this bit. Uh, to introduce you to anybody who perhaps mm. isn't familiar too much with uh, who you are and what you uh, do in the industry, uh, because uh, the, the podcast is very much about uh, Comic-Cons, so it's about the things in, that we see and do and the, the companies that we see at conventions, but perhaps someone has seen your face and seen your name on a, a, a panel description and uh, wondered uh, who Chris Ryle is. So, Chris, I mean, I know that the on the on the business card, I believe it's, is it currently president of IDW, former editor-in-chief, or what, what's the actual, what's the Niklemchia now, right, at the moment? It's uh, it, it's a long list right now. It's president, publisher, and uh, chief creative officer. But yeah, my, my original role at, at IDW uh, when I joined in 2004 was editor-in-chief. And so along the way, I added the chief creative officer title, um, spent about 14 years with the company, left for a year in 2018, 2017 I it time is has no longer uh, any kind of meaning um, but I took about a year away and then returned as the president and publisher in addition to CCO so currently holding those three titles and what would that um, on a day-to-day -day basis actually entail um, in terms of those three um, titles I mean what exactly um, are you up to when you get into the office I mean now it's it's sort of overseeing and trying to best manage all sides of our, our business, you know, from operational things to publishing decisions to partnerships, um, you know, creative development, just sort of having a hand in, in all aspects of IDW's operations right now. Um, there's periodic overlap with the entertainment division. Like I was a uh, an executive producer on the Lock and Key series that Netflix launched earlier this year. Um, so I'm, yeah, I mean, I, I tend to have involvement in all sides of our publishing business now. So, I mean, what is IDW kind of like in the in the current lockdown? How's the building holding up? Because, I mean, I did swing by uh, the IDW offices uh, the last time I went to San Diego uh, Comic-Con 2018, and like a complete tit, I went on the Saturday afternoon. Uh, no one was there. Of course nobody was there. I mean, this is the yeah. weekend, for God's sake. Everyone was at home. But I went down and uh, spoke. Uh, the TJ was uh, at that point working in the 
um, the gallery the, in the gallery, which sure. just blew me away because at that point I think you were having a, a Walt a Walt Simonson um, retrospective. So just to see original Walt Simonson uh, pieces uh, behind the glass was just amazing, and to have kind of the, the, the run of that uh, the gallery, gallery space. So it's it's great to see that floor, but I would like to have seen uh, the, kind of like the uh, the working offices. What is that like at the moment? I mean, is Liberty Station kind of closed down at this point? No, I mean it's still it's still open to the public. There's, um, I mean, for the most part, the offices look like Chernobyl. You know, everything just stopped. Everybody went home, and that's uh, largely been it. I was actually in the office yesterday. I've gone a couple times just to see the various bits of business there, but you know, there's there's people wandering around the center because it's a very open public space, and there's broad lawns and things like that so there's families walking dogs and just you know trying to to carefully distance from one another while also get out and you know just try to uh engage with a little bit of sunlight here and there so it, it just felt good to be in the office you know it's it's weird to walk down the halls and just see it you know devoid of all staff um because the staff is what brings the place to life you know that the staff is what gets everybody up in the morning and makes us feel so good about going to work with one another and so it's it's just a jarring thing to, to be there with, with no one else around. Um, so, you know, like everybody, we're, we're eager to figure out ways that we can get back and resume normal functions. So right now, everything is far I, from normal. Um, well, I mean, I know that um, the, the city of San Diego is kind of making those efforts to kind of uh, bring some kind of normality back. And, I mean, I know we've got the limited opening of the beaches at the moment. and. Uh, I've spoken to one or two people um, who, who live in the town, but just for yourself, I mean, what's what's the mood in San Diego at the moment? I mean, the beaches aren't open here, but there are some people that, that aren't letting that stop them. Um, so I don't know. I mean, the problem with a town like San Diego and California, when the weather starts getting nice, is people get even more restless. And so just the larger concern is that people don't let their restlessness and desire to get back out into the world lead to making foolish decisions and lead to sort of exacerbating this whole situation. So for now, you know, IDW is still sheltering in place, working from home, all of that. Um, but, you know, we're, we're still working on books. We, there were some books that we had to slow down and, and put on hold for a bit. But, I mean, we certainly aren't stopping publishing. We're not stopping making books. We're not stopping uh, creative development on a lot of titles. And so a lot of this has just been trying to figure out difficult decisions where there really aren't answers. Um, you know, what, what books do we keep pressing on? How many books can we, you know, keep on the schedule? What's Diamond's capacity going to be when they ramp back up? What are comic stores going to be able to handle? What are consumers going to be willing to, uh, you know, to plunk money down for? Um, it's just all of those things where it requires a lot of guesswork and, and sort of trying to reason the best you can. But not knowing I mean, if it's the right decision, but just, you know, trying to err on. It's weird because comics is such an ecosystem, you know, it's whatever decisions we make for IDW aren't just affecting the company. They're affecting our freelancers and they're affecting the fans. They're affecting the retailers, their distributors, printers, you know, licensing partners, all these things that are, are so interconnected. So a part of what we do and, and who we are that, you know, you try to make decisions that are going to sort of, be the best thing for everybody and and so that's that's a lot of our conversations is just how to manage the business from all sides in in a way that 
isn't going to have a detrimental effect on anybody. Sure. I mean, we're going to get into, I mean, because I wanted to keep this a, a pretty loose conversation because I, I, enjoy, I enjoyed that kind of loose conversation that we had when we saw each other in uh, Shrewsbury. But obviously there are some uh, topics that I do want to kind of hit into uh, and including um, the, the situation and the way that uh, IDW handled that. But of course we do want to take, um, this is always an open forum here on take, uh, Talking Con. Uh, it's all about you guys. I did kind of let uh, the, the comments and questions slide a bit on Wednesday's show because we it turned into a bit of a free-for-all at the back end. Uh, but if you do want to jump in with any comments and questions, by all means, if you're watching this on Facebook, it's now public um, uh, video, which means if you comment on there, they show up into uh, the feed, which means we've got comments like uh, Daniel um, Betts, who's saying Chris Ryle, legend. <laughs> there you go. You have legend attached to your name. That's, you that's very lofty, yeah. <laughs> you can stick that on the business card as well. Um, but I know that... Um, I know that uh, um, uh, Daniel is very um, much somebody who's been impressed with the way that you have steered IDW uh, during your tenure there. So uh, we'll dive into a couple of his questions, no doubt. Uh, we've got um, Into the Bloomers, and most of us have got a couple of uh, books in the pile. You can tell Chris is a professional as he has a spinner. Well, yes, I, I, see if I can really, you. If I can really establish my bona fides, this is my – this sounds kind of greedy. It's my third spinner. I have one uh, – in my office upstairs and I have one at IDW as well. So the more I can keep, you know, good old comics that I love on display, the, the better. Are they all kind of books that are favorites of yours or are there, is there a spinner for like new titles as well? What's funny when I first got one a few years ago, I, I loaded it up with the comics that I'd written and instantly I was like, no, I don't want that shit. I, I, I want to look at <laughs> stuff that I loved as a kid. I want to look at the stuff that inspires me. I mean, it just felt, so that lasted for all of five minutes before I started loading up with things that I love. You know, first it went from kind of the disposable old comics that I didn't really care if they got bent. But then I realized, well, I'm the only one messing with them and I'm not going to bend them. So I'm going to make sure that there are things that I really love uh, staring out at me. So I, there, there's a lot of curation that goes on. There's a lot of constant rotation. Um, and I'm, I'm sort of frequently moving, you know, preferred covers up to the front. Just things that things that I love to look at. I mean... You know, behind me right here is Jack Kirby, John Romita, Dave Gibbons, Frank Miller, um, Rom. You know, all these things that, uh, that I was gonna, I was gonna, I, I was gonna point out. Trust me, there is a question in my little list of stuff I, I was gonna hit Rom. Trust me, sure. that was you know, we, 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 just to explain to everyone. I mean, if you're a, a long-time viewer of this, you know that how big a, a Rom fan I am. I am nowhere, I, I'm a pimple on the backside of beyond to where Chris is, um, and the guy's written for Rom. Um, yeah, he, he is the fan, and uh, very much, I'm uh, very much... Uh, it took a lot of restraint to not mount the Rom helmet while I was doing the interview. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, so, and, yeah, I mean, as far as Rom goes, like... Be, well, go ahead. No, 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 go. Oh, I, was, I was just going to say... Um, we lost Michael Matlow this week. And Michael is the brother of Bill Matlow, who is the original writer on the ROM series, um, the only writer on the ROM series. Yeah. And Michael has been seeing to Bill's long-term care for, you know, close to three decades now since Bill has been in that debilitating accident. Um, and so I've gotten to know Michael over the last five years, just basically through ROM and trying to do right by Bill. And so Michael was a great guy and really a good steward of, of Bill's legacy you know, certainly put a lot of his life on hold for Bill's care. And so I just wanted to publicly, you know, um, wish my best to the family because that was, that was a really heartbreaking loss. Absolutely. Um, I believe there's actually, there's also kind of a crowdfunding for support, certainly for Bill. 
Um, I know that that's still in place at the moment. Um, yeah, uh, it, it was it was heartbreaking news. It was it was also just it kind of filtered out as well. It wasn't made any kind of it really did sum up the way that some uh, the, the brothers kind of approached life. They didn't make a massive splash. It was kind of uh, almost leaked out with friend, but by friends and family, and it yeah, became a real yeah. kind of uh, personal thing. And that that it, it was very. But, well. but to your point, the uh, the charity that Greg Pak helped set up years ago is still around. And so, I mean, Bill's care is very costly and never going to go away. And no. so, yeah, I mean, I encourage everybody who who loves any of Bill's work to, you know, still support Bill and Bill's care. Absolutely. When it comes to your comics reading, I mean, you, I mean I'm seeing some big titles there behind you. Uh, I mean, is it mostly superhero stuff or I mean, where does your reading go to? I mean, that's where it started, certainly. You know, as a kid, I was a, a Marvel kid for the first number of years until things like Crisis and, and Teen Titans, all that pulled me over to DC. Um, but no, I mean, along the way, certainly, like, these, this is kind of like childhood love stuff. Um, but, you know, indies have played a big part in my, my reading existence. Like, it was things like, I don't know, First Comics and Pacific Comics that first showed me that, you know, non-superhero stuff could be very exciting and engaging. And so... I, you know, I maintain a steady diet of superhero, not superhero indie titles, um, you know, very personal stories, all of that. And that's probably what I read more of now. But, you know, when I when I go for the comfort reading, you know, it's the stuff that that has been sitting in my head my entire life. Fair enough. Uh, once again, uh, if you do want to get questions into Chris, I'm going to get one or two in and then we'll uh, obviously fill uh, any questions that you want to get in. So please. Do dive in. Daniel's got a couple in already. I told you they'll be coming. Um, and you've also got a couple of comments as well coming in. Um, you've got uh, Into the Blue, Mr. IDW was always one of the first moves I'd visit at SDCC as they had all the cool stuff. I just pulled the trigger on an artist edition Rocketeer, which I should have bought years mm -hmm. ago. Okay, now I'm jealous as hell. Um, so, yeah, I'm a Rocketeer fan as well. Um, thank you very much indeed, Disney Plus, for sticking that on uh, uh, the uh, the board. And also you've got uh, Solicitor Smeg. Just correcting your mistake, Chris, you called them people. I believe the correct name is Idiots. I think it's the, this is referring to uh, people going out onto the uh, the beaches, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. When it comes to um, people occupying their time and uh, seeing what they can kind of distract themselves with during the whole situation, I mean, it, Lock and Key came out just before the lockdown, uh, so a whole bunch of fans really got involved uh, and watched that show. Uh, but uh, obviously, people are getting into it now that uh, they're scrolling through their the Netflix listings, um, and it is such. It is a, it's a successful adaptation of the book. It's certainly deviating from um, uh, the, the story to some degree, but it's keeping that skeleton in place, and um, it certainly is a, a very exciting. Uh, is adaptation to see on screen. I mean, can you talk to us about how that project yeah. actually came together? You know, the the, the adaptation. I mean, it, it came together three times now. Um, you know, with I think the first uh, the first go round, the Fox pilot was 2010, um, and so it really was a decade long development process. And you know, Hulu shot a pilot a few years ago. Um, that I thought was pretty effective too. You know, that's the, one I've, that's the one I've seen. That's the one I've seen. I oh mean, yeah, I was, I, and I, I, I liked it. I was, I thought it was um, a very solid adaptation. Why do you think that this work, this adaptation, worked where the other two didn't? 
Um, I mean, it's, you know, the other two didn't work not because of creative reasons. They didn't work because of various executive reasons, which is often the reason that, uh, you know, a lot of shows and worthwhile shows fall into the abyss. So this time, I, you know, Carlton Cuse and Meredith Evero, who ran the show, um, have been involved with the show for years now. And I think a lot of it was their force of will, just, you know, just keeping going on this and believing in what this thing could be as a show. And so just seeing what they did and what the cast did, um, it, it was a thrill. It was a thrill to finally see the whole thing, you know, get on air and let people see it. And I thought they did a great job. I'm excited for productions to eventually be able to ramp back up and, and, you know, get season two underway. Cause I, I really like the plan that uh, they have for that. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, there, there was a lot of heartbreak and, and sort of misses along the way, but just now that we're finally here, it's like all of that fades into the, into the ether. And now we just have a good show for people to be able to see and which is great. Yeah, I mean, I know that you were involved very much in nurturing that uh, uh, the original book uh, to come out. Um, what was your thoughts on how they adapted it and what they, you know, the changes that they made? Because they, they kind, of, they didn't take, like I say, that the skeleton is there, but um, they very much uh, came away from the very gothic um, horror tone of it and turned it more into a, a, a more of a, a young adult thriller, as it were. Uh, I mean, what was your, yeah, what was your I mean, take on the on the tone? I think I think if you lean into the gothic side on a channel or a streaming service that already had the haunting of Hill House, you know you you run the risk of people feeling like it's derivative. Um, and so the idea of playing up the kids and making it a show that that can really hit that Stranger Things audience, I think, was very smart. We all know there was going to be changes along the way. Like I think the biggest thing, the biggest visual cue that. Uh, we knew was going to have to change was the way Gabriel portrayed the head key, you know, the head opening up and you see it inside the head and you've seen all these, these memories all at once interacting with each other. Um, I think best evidence by the look inside Bodie's head where you see, you know, an eight year old's mind with all the crazy dinosaurs and Ferris wheels and colors and everything else that's going on was not a thing that would be easily portrayed on screen without a ton of CGI and, you know, a ton of CGI just pulls you out of a show like that. So I thought the way that they, they took, the concept of the head key and adapted it to, you know, to the show was very smartly done and very, you know, it was visually clever and engaging. And I, yeah, I mean, I, I think they did a great job taking the source material and making it work in that format. I, I really dug it. Um, like I say, it turned more into a young adult thriller. So it kind of also took away some of that real uh, intense threat, uh, which, uh, very much uh, Joe Hill layered into his, into those books and kind of you, you, it's we woven throughout with all the history uh, which is also going to be uh, discussed with the new books as well um, I, it, it was interesting to see how they kind of, they didn't declaw <laughs> the, the, the book as such it just added a different level of menace I thought that was um, a, an interesting way of doing it. I also love as well that the the series became really the catalyst for the new books uh, that are coming through. So you've got Lock and Key um, Battalions, I believe is the, the one uh, shot. Impale Battalions Go. is a, yeah. It's a two-parter, actually. Um, oh, okay. And so that that's set in the past. That's set right sort of at the outset of World War One, um, And along the way, what we see in that storyline featuring some of the characters that uh, had already appeared in things like the um, a couple of the one-shots that Joe and Gabriel had done, that will lead directly into the Sandman crossover. Um, 
So the seeds for the Sandman crossover were actually planted years ago without without ever knowing if they'd be able to to grow into anything real. But, you know, Joe had this idea in mind years back and he chatted with Neil about it. And Neil said it would sound like a great idea. And so we're really happy that we can finally get to that because it's, uh, like I say, it's a thing that it makes a lot of sense. You know, if anybody familiar with uh, Sandman and especially the Seasons of Mist storyline, you know, there was the, the key to hell. And so it's very possible that the key to hell this might have been made of whispering iron. Um, we'll we'll see as we go along. And then you've got uh, World War Key as well coming down uh, the pipe as well. I mean, how how are we in to getting those projects together? What's, how's the lockdown affected um, kind of release dates? Because I know that um, that was part of your um, announcement uh, when when the uh, the lockdown happened. Yeah, I mean, every release date right now is kind of written in chalk, you know, and so. <laughs> we're racing and rewriting and all of that. But I mean, the work on the book has proceeded in a pace. Like Gabriel is now halfway through the first issue, you know, with these beautifully drawn pages. Um, so nothing has slowed in that regard. And so, I mean, the, the book was originally planned for late summer, you know, we'd hope to have it out right around the time of Comic-Con. And right now that schedule is still, until further notice, that schedule is still on. So we're hoping that everything can happen as planned. You know, we. We want to make sure that shops are able to reopen properly, that that consumers are able to get the books properly. Um, and so all of that is there's always a little bit of to be determined as we go. But, you know, right now the release dates are are what we had originally said. And we'll we'll keep adjusting as needed as we go. Because, I mean, you were one of the first uh, companies to make a statement. Um, when the lockdown happened and when uh, it became apparent just how serious corona was going to be um and that for myself it was really inspiring to see because it was yourself and a couple of the uh, i think there was another one of the uh, i think it was dark horse as well that made an actual statement you were the first companies to do so uh kind yeah, of boom, boom, that, and image, boom, boom and image boom and image too yeah. were uh were right out front with it yeah and because you know we're all the same in that we all love and respect the partnership with our, our retailers. You know, I mean, they're the front lines of this business. They always have been. They're the people that are showing support for what we do. And like, we owe it to them to show support right back. And so like, it's always been a, a sort of symbiotic thing in, in that we need each other to survive. Um, so we're all, we're all determined to make the best decisions that, that help them. And, you know, also hopefully don't, don't hurt our own business, of course, but, but, we hurt ourselves a lot more if uh, if we do things that run counter to what's best for the direct market. So I mean, the I mean the, the core certainly for fans the the information uh, out of the that initial announcement, which was uh, I did oh, I mean, I've got it in front of me. IDW announcing suspension of May releases corresponding to uh, dates from May sixth, May twenty seventh, and with IDW reducing its overall publishing line for uh, pro products. Originally scheduled through July, I'm reading this out to you, you know it, you wrote it, uh, with a focus on releasing our biggest pro uh, projects in special editions to help drive traffic to stores through summer. So, um, where, uh, I mean, what has been postponed, what has been kind of pared down? I mean, I wouldn't list books anyway, even if I had them in front sure. of me, just because I, I don't feel like that's fair to any of the books. But I mean, yeah. like, like with all of us, we want to make sure that when shops reopen that, we're putting them in the best possible 
position to rebuild their business properly, which, you know, like we know by sales numbers and by, by other feedback from retailers that certain books have a broader appeal, of course, than others. And so we want to make sure that the books with the most broad appeal, the most allure to the largest number of fans, the, the books that give fans the most reasons to leave their house and go back to shops are going to be there waiting for them. And it's not like you don't want to play favorites, of course, but you, you also realize that, you know, we typically do 40 to 50 titles a month, all told between comics and trade paperbacks and art books. And there's no way that it would be right or workable to shove that much content or product, what have you, um, into stores right as they reopen their doors. And so you do have to prioritize the books that, uh, that are going to help them the most. And so what that means is, yeah, I mean, you keep the work happening on some those books, you push some back a bit, you rejigger your schedules and some books, you rethink the formats that you're doing because, you know, so a lot of times when we're making our schedules, we make schedules and plan books that, that are initially going to be beneficial to us, that we think they're going to be good books for us. And then hopefully also for the market. Um, but so when you take a closer look at these things, you go, wow, maybe we don't need that reprint. Maybe the market doesn't necessarily need this thing right now. And so let's try to be as smart as we can and as fair as we can to everybody. And like I say, it is, it's an immense challenge because who the hell knows? Um, yeah. You know, we know books like Turtles and Sonic and Lock and Key and things like that are appealing and sellable, but some of the others, you know, you just sort of have to err on the side of, what what sales history and what fans and retailers have told you that uh, is going to be most helpful. And then you, you adapt and hope for the best. And what I really want from all of this is that we can all get back to talking about cool things like, why did we do this stupid thing in a storyline? Or where's this character? Why didn't we do that? You know, because I, I hate talking about the business because talking about the business becomes a thing that pulls people away from the creative. And that's like, that's why we all love comics. We don't love comics because we, are happy to talk about publishing schedule changes and furloughs and all the terrible things that have come out of this. Um, and so I understand that that's the thing that we all have to talk about right now. I, I really can't wait for a point where we can all get back to, you know, getting everybody back to work. Um, like seeing, seeing freelancers online talk about pencils down is heartbreaking because like that's how they make um, their living. That's what they do. And I mean, and also for us, when you see a good page come in, like there's nothing better. There's no better feeling than seeing Gabriel send a lock and key page and you go, well, that's why we're doing this, you know, for the, the creative inspiration behind it all. And so, you know, we're all fans as much as we are working in the business. And, and so we, as much as our fans and our retail community want to get back to this as soon as we can do it in the smart way. So. On your feed, uh, I think that might well, well hopefully it's going to uh, uh, even itself out. But if anything, I mean, I'll also just jump in with a, a, a take on that because that whole pencils down thing um, just really got on my nerves. And I'm going to take Chris off screen so everyone is fully aware that it's me that's talking about this one because uh, I mean, it was also co opted by a toxic uh, um, group of people online who we're all fully aware of. Um, and the fact that they were gloating and they were just happy with um, companies like IDW, Dark Horse, um, Marvel, DC, everyone in the kind of like the, what would be considered the mainstream uh, comics industry just being put under the hammer and 
it, it really encouraging the pencils down uh, setup. It just it it wound me up and it got me angry. And frankly, imagine like I I, I won't name them because screw naming yeah. them. But imagine being so devoid of any kind of soul or or ability to empathize that that you're happy that the industry that you presumably loved at least loved as a kid before you grew into this toxic waste of a person like imagine rooting that on um and attacking people over that like i just i i, I don't want to give it space because there's yeah. so many larger things in this world but my god <laughs> yeah i'll tell you what then i mean we'll, we'll let's talk about the books then because we like say i want to cover a couple of the uh, the questions that have come in uh from uh, the people on the audience thank you very much indeed do keep them coming between now and when we shut up shop so anything you want to talk about, do jump in. Um, Daniel Betts is asking if I can ask one question, and he hasn't. He's asked a, a couple. Uh, how does how does the uh, IDW decide which franchise or IP to cross over? Because the crossovers have been incredible, and they have. Um, I'm not oh. going to say that they've defined uh, an element of IDW, but the, the books that you've done where you've just taken um, characters and stories and just brought them together and done, them in, done that in such a way that it's, almost organic uh, is just really incredible to see. Yeah, what do, you, what do you look for? Yeah, I mean, Daniel, first, thanks for the compliment. Um, <laughs> it's funny, there were there were some, uh, there was some website that years ago that ran this comic strip of, of how uh, we did this big event called Infestation, where it was, we couldn't quite get all the license permission to have the characters interacting, but we did the, the closest thing we could to this big multi-property crossover with Ghostbusters and Star Trek and uh, Transformers and such. Um, and this website did this comic that was like, here's how that infestation got started. And it was basically showing me in the bath, playing with a bunch of action figures matching together. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, that's a terrible visual and I apologize, but I mean, that's kind of it is like, what would be fun? What would be fun to pair the Transformers with? Um, what would be fun to pair the Ninja Turtles with? Well, Batman, Batman would be great. and. So a lot of it is what we think not only makes sense story-wise, because you don't want to do something that's so stupid that it it, it doesn't belong together. Um, Godzilla, My Little Pony or something doesn't make any kind of good story sense. So you want you want there to be a story reason, but you also just want it to be something fun and engaging. And then the third part of that is you want it to be a thing where the license holder or another publisher will actually approve of it. So, you know, there have been things that we've, we've wanted to do that haven't gone through, but a lot of the ones that, that we thought, well, that'd be a lot of fun, um, which is how most of our decisions start out, uh, have come to pass. And so that's that's been great. You know, it's uh, like I was a kid loving crossovers, you know? I mean, I grew up on things like some of the high points of crossovers, like uh, X-Men Teen Titans, you know, by Claremont and Simonson. And my older brother had that giant Superman, Spider-Man. Uh, that's the one I was gonna, edition. I was gonna, that's the one I was gonna bring up because, uh, I, I mean, I it's the one that, that my, started it all. Yeah, my my um, introduction to American comics um, when I was back reading Bino Dandy uh, Asterix here in the UK was my mum picking me up the um, Avengers annual uh, for 1976, I believe, uh, maybe a bit later. It's the one with the um, uh, the the female members of the Avengers coming together. It was all kind of like a, a, a feminist. Uh, adventure there was that and then there was a big um hardback um, ad, ad, um issue of the 
Spider-Man Superman, which yeah, I think that's pretty much where I came I came in when it came to American comics. So oh, yeah. And I didn't know a hardback good. existed. I might have to try to track down the hardback. It's out there somewhere. But, uh, it's a, it was a big yeah. kind of like an, an English so like a, a UK Marvel kind of uh, edition of it and it, yeah. But I mean they else. do they start with like what would be fun, what would be a cool story and then what will uh what will people approve and you know every now and then the licensors will go no no that doesn't make sense. So they'll keep us honest and make make the story like when we did the star trek planet of the apes that didn't really make a lot of sense but the writers scott and david tipton found this one sliver of of story that that actually you could slot that in perfectly and it did make sense in the timeline and in both universes and so that's you know we try to keep it grounded if if you could possibly talk about star trek planet of the apes crossover being grounded you you try (laughs) to find that story element that uh that makes it have reason to exist well, I mean, I remember that that crossover because um, when I first started launching an Englishman in San Diego, um, I was reading a whole bunch of sites just to kind of get a sense of what was uh, what people were involved in and what were interesting. And that was covered by uh, a, a sequel. They did a whole run of articles about that uh, that crossover and also the adaptation by of Planet of the Apes as well. Uh, so yeah. no, I, I kind of got into into it that way. So. I mean, it, it, I think it worked, but they, you have that worked kind of <laughs> tilt of your head. But, uh, but then you have, like you say, I mean, the Batman um, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has been one of the highlights of the last couple of years when it comes to uh, books being on the shelf. It's, it's, it's a series that has really kind of like captures a lot of people's imaginations. So, I mean, yeah, those, those crossovers that um, uh, come out just really do... Uh, when they work, they work well. Um, you've got a question from Solicitor Smeg. What I mean, what does IDW look for then in its uh, creators, its creative team? Um, I mean, it's kind of a broad answer, but so if, if it's a creator that would work on a licensed property, you know, you want somebody who understands the characters and, you know, has a good take on what they would do with Transformers. Like, there's been a lot of Transformers comics since the 80s. And so if we're talking to writers about Transformers, you know, we... We want somebody who has an interesting take that hasn't necessarily been seen before. Um, with artists, you want you want people who can capture the character's likeness or or you know make their make their look um, license approved, but also you know fun and engaging. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of where that starts on the license front. As far as creators outside of the license front, um, I mean, it all comes down to what what's an interesting story, what's an interesting uh, visual approach to a thing. You know, when Joe Hill first pitched a bunch of properties to us and one of them had this uh, this big spooky house with a bunch of magical keys, like, we look for that. We look for a high concept that sounds engaging and then you flesh it out and hopefully it uh, hopefully it becomes something more than just a cool log line. Um, and so I guess we look for in our creators the same thing that fans look for when they pick up a comic, which is what's going to be a cool, engaging thing that's going to you know, make you want to buy that issue, make you want to buy the next issue. I'm curious um, in that uh, time together of a, a creator with a book um, and with an idea. I mean, is it many a case of creators coming to you with those ideas or is it you sort of like spitballing some ideas and finding the, the right um, talent to go with that, that story? Um, very much a two-way street. You know, sometimes if we have a specific idea for something or we want to do a, if we know we're doing a Batman Turtles crossover, we reach out to somebody who we know can tell good 
storyline that that would kind of capture both those characters. So we'll reach out and ask for pitches. Other times people will send stuff to us or, uh, you know, they'll, they'll bring us a completed book. They'll bring us just a pitch that we then pair them with an artist. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of all the different ways that comics all come together. Um, so there, there's not really any one set way. It's, you know, fun ideas coming in. Sometimes we'll reach out to people with ideas and see what we get back and, and you just take it all as it comes. I, I mean, this being predominantly a uh, comic convention uh, podcast, uh, I, mean, I, I kind of imagine that a lot of the, uh, the pairing together or people coming to you and uh, coming to you with ideas, those happen um, once the exhibition floors kind of closed down, the bars opened up, uh, ideas are flowing, as are, the, uh, the, the, <laughs> as are the drinks, and kind of things get a little bit more loose. And those that that kind of like that melting pot of talent, which can sometimes. But I will I will say there, like there are times at, at some of the bigger cons would all go where everybody's hanging out at night to have a drink or two, you know, to unwind from a long day, and you'll you get don't want to be pitched person. at. <laughs> It's hard to be pitched at midnight, you know, because your focus isn't necessarily fully there and you're you're kind of mentally uh, worn down from the day. And so that's not necessarily always the ideal way. What I tell people about cons in general is it's a great place to make connections. It's a great place to, you know, to have, have your name and face association. Um, so it's a great place to go up to editors, get their business card, say, hey, I'm a writer, I'm an artist. I'd love to send you some stuff when the show's over. Do you mind if I drop your line in a week? That's usually so refreshing to hear that, like, oh, wait, you're not going to pitch me right now when I'm late for a panel. I have a meeting in two minutes. I haven't eaten in four hours. Um, it can be really hard on the show floor to give people the attention that you want to just because there's so much else going on. Like I say, you're usually late for something. Um, appointment schedules are, are locked down and firmly scheduled, and that lasts for all of 10 minutes after the doors open. Then everything's blown to hell. And so... You know, you there are times when somebody will start to throw an idea at me, and it sounds interesting, but I I really have to run off, and I hate to I hate to do that because it makes it it gives the impression that you're not interested, but it's just that you're sort of pulled in a lot of directions at cons, and so to avoid that, I try to recommend to people that they do that: you come up, make yourself known, introduce yourself, chat for a little bit, but try to work in a pitch or send something after the convention is really the best way to get uh, proper consideration. It's hard. I mean, I, I get it. Like it's that's sometimes the only chance you have all year to get in front of people. And so you want to you want to take advantage of that time while you have it. But I do think that time is pretty valuably spent in making the connection and not necessarily making the pitch. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. And I suppose as well, kind of you, you have a, a, a good idea of what a person is like um, to work with and to kind of in that interpersonal when they are on karaoke. And you know they're, they're singing their hearts out. They, that's when you see look, the you see the soul. The soul, see the soul I do. I, I judge somebody by by their karaoke <laughs> song. Yeah, absolutely. Like if you take it overly seriously, if you try to really emote and really try to, you know, if if you want to try to hit the same emotional highs as like Adele, you're not going to do it. You're not going to win me over. But if you have fun with it and you pick a song that's kind of goofy to begin with, like absolutely, pitch me your best. I want to hear it. Fair enough. A couple of comments, um, which are more throwaway, and then we'll get back to one or two questions. Um, you've got uh, Solicitor Smeg uh, following on from what you're saying. Okay, it's not a serious idea, but Ghostbusters and 30, 30 Days of Night would be a hilarious mismatch. So if you just want to make a quick note of that one, there you go. 
And um, this one's actually come from Danbury because, yes, the convention collective, the site that I run, has been doing a daily Transformers comic review for the past week. Uh, issues 18 goes up today, 19 tomorrow. So, yeah, we've been supporting those uh, books in a, Fantastic. In a big way. Fantastic. Thank you again. Okay. Uh, so, Sarita P is asking, uh, what is the process of picking what and who to do an artist edition? Because these books are something that I would love to get into, but they are just so expensive. They're, I mean, it's, uh, they're, but it's understandable to have those... Uh, art pieces presented in the best uh, format possible. How do you? They're also kind of somewhat this? cumbersome. Like they're they're hard to store, <laughs> then, you know. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's driven by basically by one thing, which is uh, the editor Scott Doomer, who pioneered that at. Um, so Scott used to be an art dealer, and Scott knows probably better than anybody in this business where to find original art, um, who still held on to their pages, where full issues are in the collector community. And so it's driven by who is worthy of that format, first of all. And worthy is obviously very subjective. Um, and then can we find enough pages to make a book? You know, and we we don't want to use other people's scans or or black and white copies or something like that. We want to be able to have the originals and scan them from the original. So you're they're picking up every bit of everything that the original art offers, which can be everything from the blue line um or notes for the uh, colorist or coffee rings tear stains you know whatever it is um you want it to be a thing where people look into the book and it's as close to owning the original art without actually owning that high price original art as humanly possible and so it's it's kind of yeah what books or what artists you really sort of merit that kind of treatment and also like you say because they're a very expensive book they're also very expensive to print um so it's got to be something that is going to find an audience. Like there are things that some of us would love to do that maybe wouldn't find a broad enough audience to justify the expense. And so those we have to kind of put our own our own self-interest aside and go, okay, well, maybe that, maybe a, a Chris Star Crystal Warrior Artist Edition isn't going to find enough people that will support it. But a Jim Lee X-Men Artist Edition, absolutely that's going to have a ton of fans and so you you try to weigh the stuff that you'd love to see yourself versus what's going to have enough commercial viability to make it you know worth the expense and also just what's available um and so there there's all of those things that go into it and also you know what's what's going to be worth it to consumers to spend 125 or 150 dollars on um and usually that's the stuff that they grew up loving that's the stuff that lodges in your heads like Walter Simonson books or John Byrne or you know so many artists that uh that a lot of us just grew up you know worshiping yeah when I went into the comic um art gallery um uh admittedly one of the highlights was talking to TJ because um he's one of the he's the greatest yeah great great guy behind a counter yeah. doesn't he knows he knows more than you but he doesn't kind of lord that over you you it, it comes at it very much as a fan and comes at it uh, sideways so it's really cool to it was great to have that conversation but also to spend time you because there was a number of the artist editions uh in the gallery and to actually get those put them up on the uh the viewing um length and just kind of flip through just amazing stuff we're gonna get the chance to speak to uh, scott dumbier in a couple of episodes time uh, so looking forward to speaking to him and his take on the, the whole uh, the process. So that's where we're Yeah. Uh, so one other, one other aspect real quick to the artist editions is, you know, what other publishers will approve. Because we've done a few that 
that are properties that we you know have under our auspices like Rocketeer. But for the most part, they're other people's properties. I mean, we've done a lot of Marvel books and DC books. And so the fact that other comic publishers have allowed us to take, you know, some of their classic storylines and classic artwork and make books out of them is a real testament to sort of the spirit of goodwill between publishers. Um, there's never been a collection of the Bill Mantlo, Michael Golden Micronauts in any form, you know, since the early 80s. And so Marvel and Hasbro both agreed to let us do uh, the recently announced Micronauts Artist Edition, which, you know, showcases Michael Golden's gorgeous pages, you know, at the size they were drawn. Um, and so part of it, too, is that it's it's which other publishers are are willing and amenable to to, to let us, you know, publish their property, basically. Yeah. Um, this is all kind of bouncing backwards and forwards to other episodes. We had uh, an interview with James Williams. Uh, the third the other day, and he is a huge Micronauts uh, fan. Yeah, so he'll be, oh, yeah. He'll, be, he'll be very happy to hear that there's not it's like an edition coming for that. Um, a couple more questions, and then I've got a, a bunch as well. We'll, we'll try and cover as much as we can. Uh, Andrew Dickinson, who, by the way, it's his birthday today. Happy birthday, Andrew. I hope you're having a, a happy birthday, a, Andrew. I hope you're having a good enough day under the circumstances, sir. Uh, talking of Netflix um, earlier, do you see someone like them or Amazon? buying publishing houses to get the rights to their content that's a big question it is um and i don't i don't know that i see them buying publishers you know they netflix has made a couple moves in that regard as far as you know they they bought mark miller um, yeah <laughs> you know oh, mark miller's good. developing a lot of things for them and there's also the recently announced first look uh deal between boom and netflix and so i think there there will potentially be more of that you know the first look options but I don't know. I don't know if I see them actually taking on a publisher. Um, comic publishing isn't something you should do as a as a side business, you know. And so Netflix, I think, is is very good at what they do. But I I don't know that all of the the, the financial structures of publishers make as much sense to uh, to people that trade in that kind of you know seven, eight, nine digit uh, worlds that they're used to. Um, so I think there comics will certainly serve as Feeders for their content and has, has led to some really good content for them, but I don't know. I mean, I, I guess we'll see. I get a couple of years, you know, we, all of us making anything for anyone in any form might all be owned by the same, uh, the same company. So <laughs> it could all be Apple publishing or something like that in a few years, but, but I don't know. I, I think right now we'll probably see more partnerships, but maybe not uh, outright purchases. Fair, no, fair enough. It's okay. We're all going to be owned by Marvel. Even this, Podcast is going to be owned by Marvel. Give it a couple of years. We're working on it. Um, and one more um, from our audience. Uh, uh, this is Lock and Key. When are we going to? Uh, this is back to release dates and stuff. When are we going to get the next collate, collected Lock and Key volume? I'm eagerly awaiting reading Dog Days, but I'm hanging on for a hardback. I mean, you might be hanging on for a little while longer. I, I might <laughs> recommend uh, checking out checking out Dog Days uh, on its own. Um, so this is this is the long talked about, I mean years long talked about uh, Golden Age collection, which would essentially collect all the the past set stories that Joe and Gabriel have done. And Joe has a very specific order for those stories, and a very specific. Um, he's still got a couple more stories that that we have yet not yet announced that will be part of that collection. And so I wouldn't expect it for maybe uh, a couple more years. Um, but I think when people will see it, it's going to contain an awful lot of good stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's like I said, there's still a couple more stories that have to be done before 
before that book can exist in its proper form. Fair enough. There you go. There's the answer to your question. Into the blue, mister. Um, back to a couple of mine now, because, uh, I mean, I mean, the business card is very much uh, dominated by that trivimerate title, uh, but you, you have your chops as a writer, and you're seeing plenty of people uh, taking this opportunity uh, to tackle maybe personal projects, uh, perhaps that they wouldn't normally have the chance to look at otherwise uh, during this lockdown. Is there anything that you're currently looking at as uh, something to get down on page? You know, it's funny. There were there were a few things that I I was really feeling good about their progress prior to this. Since this has started, I I have been admittedly so immersed in in trying to navigate all of the the tricky waters of this that I I've really been spending just about all my time on on managing the business as best I can. And so sure. now, as much as I'm I. I would love to say that I'm one of those people that's uh, been able to sort of plow ahead on these things. Um, those things have always been been projects that I try to do in my in the cracks of the day, you know. And so those cracks right now don't exist. The days are just kind of one long work day that never <laughs> stops. Um, and especially now, you know, when when some of the staff is not working, some of the freelancers are not working. And all of that, I, I almost don't know that I can even find the mental headspace to properly allow myself to do that. Um, it's been hard to, to turn off any of this to even, like I'm having a really hard time watching stuff. I don't know if, if about other people, but I it's hard to, to be able to focus on watching things. So what I've been doing is like when I cannot, I'm reading a lot of books and I've been reading a lot of old comics when I can find that, but otherwise it's, it's kind of like, I don't know, it's a wanting to do right by the business, but also feeling the guilt of doing other things that are not related to the business right now. So I'm eager to try to get back to those things when I can, but right now it's it's uh, it's not flowed anyway. Fair enough. I'm finding myself um, finding things I can binge. Not something that I, so I have to make an investment of time over the course of yeah, a day or a yeah. couple of days. So a uh, couple of days of uh, Thursday, Friday last week, it was Miracle Man. Uh, I did my Miracle Man reread. Re re um, this week, I think I am going to do, because off the back of a couple of conversations with Dematius uh, online, I'm going to get back into Craven's Last Hunt and reread that as well. Uh, so mm. I've been doing kind of stuff I would know that I would have to binge, which is why I haven't watched the last three episodes of Westworld. Because then I can oh, just yeah. spend three hours and just, you know, instead of just kind of being distracted by, oh, that thing that's disastrous that's happening outside the window. Ah, fun and games. So at least you can kind of nail down on it. Um, other books that you've done or recent books that you've done, I mean, we've talked about it very briefly and I said I was going to come back to it, is Rom Space Night. Um, so I'm going to ask uh, and talk about that because this is... Everyone else can just turn off and go away now because this is just for me. Because <laughs> uh, uh, what is it about that character that just, just grabs your attention? I don't know. I mean, I, I've talked about it so much over the years that, like, I've read a lot of books that are probably quote unquote better comics that came out around <laughs> the same time. But you know, as you can see, it's sitting over my that right there is a, this amazing Frank Miller Terry Austin cover. And I I think it's because I was I was a little kid reading Sunny superhero comics. And then along comes this, this book that, you know, ostensibly was a toy comic. It was there to sell the kind of shitty action figure that they made. Well, it was very much an in-action figure. Didn't, 
it didn't do a lot. It lit up. It was like the first LED toy, but the toy itself was kind of not the greatest. But the comic was so much better than the toy, and that wasn't often the case back then. Um, and so the stories had these these sort of darker shadings to them, and they were they were paranoid in the same way as things like, you know, I saw Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the the '79 remake, when I was probably too young to understand the time period or what was going on in there beyond just the immediate. Um, and so it was all of that, like not knowing who to trust and the, the neighbor next door might be an evil alien bent on, you know, killing you or, or taking over the planet, that kind of thing. And so I think it was just the, the darker shadings and the way that, that, you know, Bill Matlow and Selby Sema, for, especially for the first four or five years, just told the story where there were real consequences, you know, characters didn't die and come back, they died. And, and so there was a point about four or four years in where Rom set up in this small West Virginia town and the, these humans were helping him out once they finally accepted that he wasn't there to kill them. Uh, so he found this, this sort of a de facto home amidst these humans that were helping him fight this shadow war. And then the entire town was slaughtered and you're like, holy shit, like, this book's really got stakes and this really got dark. And I think it was just that it was, it was kind of the darkness and the, the spookiness of it all that, that really played upon things that, that I've always loved. You know, I, I then became a rabid X-Files guy and I've, I've always had a UFO bent and all of that. And so this book just touched on all these things that would become more and more, you know, a part of who I am as we go along. So it's, it's always just resonated. And also it's, it's kind of like a favorite anything at that age. You know, it just lodges in your head against all good reason. And so it is the thing I've, I've read enough times over the years, though, that it, for me at least, it, it holds up really nicely. I think I, for myself, it was definitely also that, that real sense of consequence of the character, uh, that there is that decision to sacrifice all of what makes you a man and have that transplanted into the body of this um, robot warrior warrior killing machine um and that kind of is for a young kid reading comics to have that sense of self being completely removed down to its essence and put into uh, into to rom that kind of uh, got my attention because it was like i say it was <laughs> considering it was based off this rather shitty toy um and it, it, it he just, was you know what he was he was kind of he was kind of our own silver surfer you know yeah silver yes, surfer predate, yes. pre, he predated us and he he agonized every issue. You know, you go back and read those old Stan Lee comics and like he was the most tortured character ever. And I think Rom was a close second to that. Like he somehow held on to his nobility, even though he had to sacrifice his humanity, basically, which probably makes it that much harder to hold on to your your human side, your your noble side. And so we were able to get in on the ground floor of this character that had that same sort of angst and torture. And and so again, he wasn't. He was doing the right things, even though he had a lot of reasons not to. And so, yeah, I mean, it was it was that torture and angst and pathos of it all that I think really helped build the character out too. I mean, people talk about um, Robocop um, and Judge Dredd uh, being the proto uh, character to Robocop. I think if you look a little bit further back, Rom definitely fed into that um, very similar sense of just distillation of self into a different body and what makes human I, I was blown away by uh, by Ron so 
Uh, that sure. was just more for me just to talk about it wrong. So thanks for that. Um, I mean, uh, I'm never going to shy away from the conversation. <laughs> uh, you also wrote an adaptation of uh, one of my all-time favorite um, books by literally my all-time favorite um, author, which is Douglas Adams. You did uh, an adaptation of Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency. Now, well, I didn't... Oh, if I can just one one little correction is it wasn't uh, an adaptation it was uh, uh it was a new storyline so yeah new, yeah well, was it like a, a jump off from because I was about to say I, I've never I've not read it because I'm so kind of protective of myself of the Douglas Adams books that I Fair. I I really struggle with um, other people so like stepping into those shoes so I haven't read any of the uh, other sequels that have um, been done. Um, I, I think I watched a couple of the episodes of the uh, Max Landis take on it. Um, so I, I, I didn't, it's, it's just myself. It's just more of a protective thing for myself. No, no, um, I mean, that, believe me, that's, that is the right response. Like it's presumptuous and stupid for me to try to tackle anything that Douglas Adams wrote. Um, when I read the first Dirk Gently book, I didn't like it at all for a while. <laughs> it, it took a hundred pages for the to show up, you know? And, and I go, this is nothing's, nothing's paying off until it does. And then when it does, when, when everything weaves into, to where he was going with it all along, you're like, you're sort of blown away by the brilliance of it. So I, I purposely didn't go back and reread those books before. Writing well, that's what I was doing. That's what I was going to lead into. I mean, how, how can you talk about the book and how it how it came about? So, yeah, I mean, you didn't re go back and reread. No, no. So I read the book years ago, um, and I didn't want to go near it because, again, I knew that that if I did, like the shadow Douglas Adams cast is so broad that I I would have just curled up and I'd probably still be curled up and and just going, no, no, I can't, I can't. So I I just sort of wrote the character from what I remembered from memory but again i didn't want to i didn't want to even try to touch on the same rhythms or anything because i i didn't want to be that pale of an imitation um around the time i was writing it i was i was in england and so i we took a trip out to highgate cemetery and i didn't know that douglas was interred there and so i was walking around and i saw this gravestone where there was you know basically just pencils at the gravesite instead of flowers and i go what 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 is that? Why are people leaving pencils? And you go up and you see that as Douglas's marker. And you're like, well, not only does that make perfect sense, but then I basically, I basically asked for permission slash forgiveness for, uh, for tackling characters that I probably had no right to tackle. Um, I had fun with it because it was, it was really hard and challenging and interesting to try to, uh, to, to sort of capture the character and the storylines as I remember Douglas doing them. But when I went back and then read the books after writing the comics, I go, oh yeah, no man, you never should have gotten near that. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I, I think I should take a look at it. I mean, like I say, I did watch a couple of the episodes of the Max Landis thing. Um, there is another issue with Max Landis, uh, which several people who have watched this show will know about, um, including an instance where I nearly sent his nose through the back of his skull, but we'll, we'll let that slide. But um, probably, probably, yeah. probably should have seen that instinct through, but uh... <laughs> yeah, um, it was the first year we went out to San Diego though. So I think the, to go to my first San Diego Comic-Con and be arrested 
probably not would have been the highlight that I wanted it to be. So yeah, probably no, a good um, idea. No, I, I would say the one thing about the Dirt comics um, is, is if you view them as as like an Earth Two or Earth. 12 version of the character and not existing in the same universe as Douglas's, which should only ever exist in their own universe, then it makes it a little easier. Um, but the the look and feel that we gave the character and even transplanting him to San Diego, which, which we did, wasn't because I live in San Diego and I was trying to be the presumptuous American to take this very British character and move him to, you know, California. It was because at the time, the TV show was planned to be set in San Diego. And so I was I was trying to help bridge that. Um, and so that was another reason that I tackled it rather than handing it off to a more capable, preferably English writer was that, you know, sometimes I'll do these things because behind the scenes, you have to keep it in house. You have to sort of keep proprietary information to yourself uh, and not, uh, not reach into the broader community with it. And so it wasn't me just trying to overstep and, and bring the character to America in a town that I now live, it was for those other reasons as well. So I would just say if you view it as something that is wholly different and removed from what Douglas did, then it it makes it a little bit easier to take. Understandable. And because like the reason why I actually thought it was a jump off from uh, uh, Salmon of Doubt is because that's where those first four, five chapters of, in the book, um, sure. have, that's where it would have ended up anyway. So that's where I, I thought it was coming from. Uh, we've got a couple of comments, and then I'll do just a, one last question and let you get off and enjoy the rest of your, your Sunday. Um, we have ourselves into the Blue Mister. Um, talking about the uh, artist edition, I figured this is why they picked Hellboy in Hell for Magnolia's uh, artist edition, because all the artwork pages, there's all the stories are long gone. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, that was, that was essentially why we um, – oh, I'm sorry. I was going to say that was essentially why we, we sort of have the adjunct format, which is the artifact edition. Artist edition essentially full-length stories and then covers and things like that. But the artifact editions were made, same format, but basically where the pages have been so scattered throughout the world that, that we've not been able to find complete stories. And so things like the Watchmen book or the Frank Miller Daredevil book, you know, might have some pages from the same issue, but don't have complete issues. And so, you know, always preferable to give complete issues where we can. Um, but in some cases, it's just fun to be able to see any pages from uh, – any of these classic runs at that size and format. Understandable. Uh, Sarita P, I pre-ordered the Jim Lee X-Men. Uh, Thank you. Indeed, uh, the comment, uh, good call, these pages will look uh, incredible. Andrew English, uh, good to have you watching along, Andrew. I'm, re I'm reading IDW's uh, Star Trek Discovery Aftermath on way to and from work this week. So uh, you've got a, a reader there, uh, great, which is great. Uh, rather cool. Um, Omahasa, if you haven't watched it yet, give High School Girl a, a try. It's a great coming of age and made with an old school video games book uh, hook. So, uh, good recommendation. Go. Uh, recommendation for that. Uh, Into the Blue Mister. Uh, why has nobody mentioned a Highlander, Godzilla, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek Turtles crossover yet? Are you writing this down? Are you? This is this is where you you sort of drop in these scanners like head exploding because <laughs> just i'm in my head i'm i'm going okay that licensor might go for it that one never will that one could that one will, <laughs> and it would be two years of of our lives trying to chase down a thing that maybe could never come to pass for different reasons but um that i mean i, I like the challenge of, of the multi-part crossovers but they're they are multi levels of of difficulty and pulling together too 
That's a that would be a lot of plates to be spun right there. That's <laughs> that's incredible. Um, and Dan Berry, um, oh, this is Andrew English, sorry, yeah, because uh, a response from Andrew English. Uh, now that the Transformers IDW universe has reset, is there any planned IDW universe crossovers planned? Um, not not full universe things. You know, it's funny. Like when we first did the the Hasbro universe, um, we I, we probably got too too ahead of ourselves and putting too many characters at once in front of everybody um, because they're you know I, I know that didn't work for some of the fans who just wanted this or just wanted that um, but I will say yeah Daniel thank you for the plug on the Transformers uh, Terminator crossover and there's also a uh, Transformers My Little Pony book that we essentially solicited and are um, are ready to to bring to market when we can um, we have actually don't have the, to that question from Andrew. We do not have the Terminator license. Dark Horse does, but we're doing a crossover in uh, partnership with Dark Horse. Yeah, and uh, there we go. I'm waiting for uh, Transformers trade, including uh, Terminator 84. So there we go. Um, and I think the one last question, uh, which is coming, and then I'll dive into one last thing to talk about, and then we'll let you get off. Um, Daniel Betts is asking, I told you you'd have more than one question. Uh, how did he get Peter Led back to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? Was, well, so did you have the negatives? Um, have you <laughs> still kept them in a file somewhere? No. So what this is? So we're doing a book called um, "The Last Ronin," which is this turtles book that's essentially it's essentially the Dark Knight Returns version of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, and it's a thing that Kevin and Peter have wanted to do for thirty years. You know, I mean, when you look at the original Ninja Turtles and you hear any kind of interview from Kevin. Frank Miller's work looms very large in the development of the turtles and in their inspiration. And so, you know, like for most of us who read it, the Dark Knight Returns book really captivated them when they started talking about what a turtles version of that book would look like. And so there was a lot of development work done 30 years ago that Kevin and Peter did notes and sketches and like everything that, that Kevin worked on, um, there are these, beautiful like unpublished note pages and sketch pages and character designs and world building that that he did and so a lot of that was the basis for taking this now and telling this long gestating story um this year and so kevin essentially just he and peter talk every now and then he reached out to peter and said hey you know we'd really like to do this thing um and peter said yeah it's the right time let's you know go for it and so so it's great to finally be able to, to do this thing that you know these guys had in mind decades ago but now can also bring to life kind of all the the storytelling skills that they've developed in that time too so it's in a lot of ways it's sort of like the um the jla avengers book that that was you know george prez planned to do 40 years ago whatever the timeline is now yeah. um that when they did that book when kirbusek and george did that book it was not the same, but it had it had bits and pieces from that original thing, but then told through a, a more modern storytelling approach and, you know, who those creators were at that time. Um, and I know Roy Thomas was going to write the original and not Kurt, so, you know, no need to correct my, my history on that. But so in this case, it is, you know, Peter and Kevin, and certainly Kevin, who is, who is the driver of all of these kinds of things, doing what he does now, but also taking what he did then and building it into something entirely new and different and working with Tom Waltz and Andy Kuhn, who are very much, you know, in the world now of the, of the turtles. Um, and so it's, it's kind of the best of the past and present and 
becoming this thing set in the future. And we're, we're really excited about what, uh, what they've done so far. And so that's one of those that when comic stores reopen, like we want that thing ready and waiting for people. Cool. Uh, Daniel is saying, thank you very much indeed uh, for answering. And yeah, great thank you question. For asking. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, if anything, I mean, I know I've mentioned it earlier, but uh, the, uh, the comic art gallery, uh, which is underneath the offices of uh, IDW, uh, up, at, uh, um, up in that part of San Diego, if you do get the chance to go, because uh, they have, I, I don't know how legit it is as a mock-up of Kevin Eastman's office uh, down on the, uh, the ground floor, <laughs> um, but uh, it was worth checking that out because, as we mentioned right at the top of the show, uh, I'm a huge. I mean, it's Rom Space Knight, it's Zatanna, and it's the Rocketeer for me. And the stuff that he's got in that room, which is obviously glassed off and everything, but the the Rocketeer stuff that he's got in that room, uh, that you've got in that uh, the art, comic art gallery. If you get the chance to go, check it out because I. It's, it's more of a turtle shrine and, and yeah. all the things Kevin loves um, than it is. You know, like he and Peter sat at a a kitchen table when they first created it, which would not have made it for a very visual display so this is you know kevin's drawing table but also just stuff stuff everywhere yeah. like all the stuff he loves so it's yeah it's great to look at just don't maybe go on a saturday when we aren't there um <laughs> yeah no that's not gonna leave that's not going to i'm not going to forget that anytime soon so the, yeah fair enough um okay we'll we'll wrap up um because uh, this has got i mean times has flown this has been amazing um, but we will. Uh, I do want to talk about this because I, I, I think it'd be remiss for me to talk about the aftermath of where we are at the moment and what we can see in the future uh, in terms of um, what the industry is going to look like, um, who is actually still going to be here, uh, not only in terms of publishers but um, retailers. It is such, um, a, if not bleak, but just uncertain time. I mean, what do you personally feel that the landscape is going to look like in the aftermath? Do you see um, the diamond situation, that monopoly being um, removed and other avenues open? What was, what's your general take on what we could be seeing afterwards? It's funny, as you were asking the question, I got the little vibration thing to tell me that my headphones are, uh, are probably going to go dead. <laughs> so I just had this flash that I would go, oh, sorry, my headphones died. I can't answer the question just, just to be evasive. <laughs> good, but, good, good out. I like it. But but no, no, I mean, I, I do think, like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I mean, Diamond is, you know, the comic industry distributor. And so I know there's other conversations taking place. But uh, I think comic stores will, when comic stores can reopen to a greater degree, they will. I think all of us will, will put less products in front of people in the immediate and let everybody sort of rebuild properly um i think the biggest thing because there you know there's all kinds of different scenarios of what might happen whether other distributors come into play whether other people find different ways to get product into people's hands that's all still largely speculative so i think the biggest thing is just hoping right now in the immediate that shops can weather the shutdown and that they can reopen because again like that's the front line to this whole business and so that's that's what i think what we're all focused on is how to help them in as many ways as we can so we can get back to getting comments into fans hands and having a thriving community once again and so all the other things are largely details that still need to get figured out or you know i could answer you today and tomorrow that answer will change again and yeah. so i i think it's more hope than it is having concrete answers right now but it's 
you know, I've always approached everything from a, an optimistic point of view. And so I'm, I'm optimistic that we're going to bounce back in a, in a nice way. And that we're going to, you know, everybody's going to reinvigorate. And I think everybody's going to probably more, uh, show more appreciation for their local stores and, you know, maybe even come out of this a bit stronger once, once we can all get back to doing what we all do. I, I mean, I've been really uh, buoyant by the, uh, the way that the industry has rallied around it, it, itself. And uh, like I say, uh, with one or two exceptions who uh, don't matter. You yeah. don't matter. Don't matter. There you go. Even better. Um, I think it's been cool to see um, creators Publishers all coming together to support, like you say, each other. I'm really curious to see. Um, I mean, we've recently had the Creators of the Comics uh, effort, which was um, support for the retailers. I'm curious to see if we're going to have the next um, round of that, which is going to be support for the creators, the artists, and the writers who are struggling at this point, who have seen work just dry up and are finding themselves very much uh, uh, in a very tough situation. So I'm wondering if that's going to be the next um, level of support that we're going to see down the line. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's a very good point because we all, you know, we all have initially focused on the comic stores that are shut down, but you know, publishers have lost people and creators have certainly lost their way to make a living. And the people that, that largely do a lot of their business throughout the year at conventions have lost their, uh, their means to do that. And, you know, for the foreseeable future. And so, there's a lot of different sides of support that are needed and necessary. And so I guess to that, yeah, I mean, not only do I hope that there's, there's more broad support to come, but also I very much appreciate seeing all of the goodwill and help that, uh, that people have, have brought to bear so far. Yeah. Excellent stuff. And I think that um, optimistic note is where we'll uh, leave it there. Uh, because like I say, I've been trying to keep this run of shows to about a tight hour. We're now uh, 75, 75, eight minutes, uh, say 80 minutes in. Wonderful. So yeah, we kind of blew through that. Uh, but uh, it's been great to talk to you, Chris. Um, I mean, like I say, it's, it, the time's just flown and we've we've covered loads of stuff and it's been great to do, uh, to chat with you. Yeah, uh, same, Leonard. I, I appreciate the talk and I appreciate everything you do for the business too. Like, you do an awful lot and you are very active on uh, social media in hyping and promoting and helping and boosting and that's all very appreciated, man. So thank you. And thanks everybody for the questions too. Thank you very much indeed to everyone for getting those in. And thanks for the kind words. I appreciate that. Um, where can people follow you online? Where's the best place to find out what's happening with IDW so like in the near future? Um, I mean, I think, you know, IDW has the IDW publishing on Twitter and, and Instagram. And I'm at Chris underscore Ryle at Twitter and Instagram and I'm on Facebook. And so I'm, I'm findable on just about all of these different places. And so any questions that you might have that I didn't get to here, um, I know John Barber and I are doing a, uh, a Q&A next week as well through the, the virtual WonderCon. So any questions that don't get answered, you know, this way or through any other chat, it's like feel free to post them and I will do my best to uh, to reply to everybody. So again, like I thank everybody just for, for the support of IDW and for the industry. And, you know, hopefully we can all, we can all keep moving forward in good positive directions. Excellent. Chris, thank you very much indeed for your time, sir. Enjoy Thanks, the sir. rest of your Sunday and uh, hopefully we'll see each other, if not just in a virtual space, but um, hopefully uh, at a bar somewhere where I'm not trying to pitch something at you and we'll just have a, a good old chat again. You, you've, you've earned the right to pitch. So yeah, throw, <laughs> throw things at me. Uh, believe me, I'll take pitches from anybody if we can all just get back in front of one another again.
I, I've mentioned it on Twitter before. Um, as much of a fan of comics as I am, and as much as uh, I try support as much as I can, I do not have a single story in me. I'm the best person for a publisher to go and have a pint with because there's nothing in here. There's there's no ideas. So I'm, I just accept. To kind of, <laughs> just to kind of catch up with it will be great. So we'll see you certainly down the line. Chris, it's been a pleasure. Great. Cheers. Thanks, Sonny. Take care. Enjoy your Sunday. Excellent. Excellent. So there you go. That's Chris Ryle. Um, Chris, um, of course, um, you can follow him on uh, social media, Chris underscore Ryle. Uh, com. And like I say, he is going to be at the, the, a number of virtual uh, cons down the line. Next week, I'll be uh, doing that. Do check out um, his uh, feed as he goes. Excellent stuff. Um, I am running this on a machine which I'm unfamiliar with, and I don't have the bits and pieces that I would usually have in terms of what I want to present for my crowdfunding um, spotlight and also our artist of the day. And we have run a little bit for, uh, over, so I'm not going to do that tonight. What I am going to do is go online a little bit early on Wednesday. Uh, so I am going to be bringing you um, the uh, Creator Spotlight and a special show uh, just before that, which kind of leads me on to uh, something I'm going to just wrap up on. Uh, because um, at the end of the day, um, I'm not currently earning anything. Um, I work as a mobile DJ. That's what pays the bills. There are no venues open. There is nowhere allowing me to play. Uh, I'm not earning a damn penny. I did have a little bit of uh, slush money. Uh, which thankfully came in. Uh, if anyone's here in the UK and is aware of uh, PPI refunds, I got one. Uh, so I got a nice little check just before January, February. And I thought to myself, that's going to pay for my flights and my accommodation in San Diego. Now it's paying for food and stuff. So, uh, yeah, that's pretty much where I am. But I am requiring a – I need a new laptop because I did that uh, interview with J.H. Williams III. It was very late at night, and I managed to spill a half pint of cider over a laptop. Um, so any support that you can send my way on the Patreon, um, I did put out a, uh, something um, earlier on in the day, which is if I put half in, if I do a, like an Indiegogo for a couple hundred quid just to help me out, would you do it? Nobody responded. I appreciate that. But um, yeah, I, I think I might be uh, putting something up online just to kind of get something done ASAP. If I can order something and get it here by Wednesday or next weekend. I really need to kind of, uh, yeah, Toby, um, it did die on me. Uh, the, I thought it was just the keyboard. I thought I was really lucky. I thought everything was in place, um, at which point I um, it just uh, wasn't running at all. It just uh, died this afternoon, which is weird because I then took the hard drive out, the uh, solid state hard drive, and stuck it in a caddy, and I, I have backed up everything. So I can pretty much get back up to speed really quickly. I just need a laptop to do it. Um, I'm using the wife's machine at Omahasa. Technically, I, dr I drowned it, so it was murder. Yeah, I mean, this is why I totally understand if anyone doesn't want to donate, because quite frankly, it's my fault entirely. Um, but that's where we are. I do need a new laptop, so uh, any support you can throw me, I appreciate it. Uh, I tried to order a new PC from Dell, three-month delivery. Well, that's encouraging. I was thinking PC World or something like that, and I don't know, or even eBay. I don't know. I don't know, but either way, I need a new machine. So there we go. Um, but I may be putting a little bit of uh, an effort uh, for uh, online if you do want to support us. But this is the best way you can support. Please do, uh, if you are watching this on YouTube, subscribe, hit the like button, hit the notifications. If you are watching this on Facebook, share it with your nerd fans, uh, because I think this has just been a really great chat with Chris Ryle. Um, I know that... Um, 
I think Daniel shared it and Tess Fowler shared it. Great that Tess Fowler's watching. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a lot of fun. And the thing is, we have got ourselves some great guests coming up. And I want to make sure I have a computer to hand uh, to uh, kind of get show them uh, properly. Which is where I'm going to wrap up with uh, just the announcement about the guests that we've got coming up for May. Are you ready for this? <laughs> this Wednesday, um, kind of jumping on a couple of topics which we covered today, because um, while he's not officially aligned with that group that shall not mention be mentioned, he's a, a, an artist that ha or creator that has been adopted by that group. At the end of the day, he is somebody who does crowdfund and he does um, look for alternative um, ways to get books into uh, people's hands. This is Billy Tukey. He's a great artist. He's a great creator. He's a great person to talk to. He doesn't align with me politically, but if we all did, it would be a very boring world. But at the end of the day, he's very passionate about comics and can't knock that. So we're going to get into all sorts of stuff. That's going to be uh, this Wednesday. That's Billy Tukey. Uh, and then we're going to talk also to uh, Fraser Campbell about his crowdfunding effort, which is uh, currently doing great guns. Uh, we are, that's going to be a great show. So that's Wednesday, 29th of April. Billy Tukey uh, with uh, Fraser Campbell. Sunday, the 3rd of May, uh, it's going to be a bit of a packed show. We've got ourselves um, A Place to Hang Your Cape, which is a, a fan site on, a new, on Facebook, Twitter, wherever. Uh, great website, very much a supporter of indie comics here in the UK. Uh, David Molowski is going to be joining us from them. Uh, we've also got ourselves um, Alastair Campbell, who is a comics journalist and supporter of um, bits and pieces here in the UK. So he's going to be coming on. So for the first half of the show, it's going to be David and it's going to be um, Alastair talking about um, the, the landscape of comics uh, here in the UK. Um, on Wednesday, the 6th of May, it says TBA on my tweet, uh, confirmed this morning, we're going to be talking to the owner of OK Comics. Uh, this is a comic book shop based in Leeds. Uh, this is Jared Myland. Um, OK Comics is an Eisner-nominated shop. Um, it is one of the most um, recognized um, stores and uh, prestigious stores in the UK. It's small, it's intimate, but they are warm and they know their stuff. It's going to be great to talk to Jared. That's going to be on Wednesday, the 6th of May. On Sunday, the 10th of May, we've got ourselves another IDW publishing special, Dirk Wood and also Scott Dumbier. Uh, Scott Dumbier, of course, is the special projects uh, uh, director at uh, IDW. So we're going to get into all sorts of bits and pieces, uh, harking back to uh, the things that he's got in his archive, because we've been talking about like uh, the Alan Moore big numbers stuff recently, and he's more than up for talking about that as well. So that's going to be an interesting chat. Wednesday, the 13th of May. Um, we have got ourselves a hard pencil, which means he's definitely wanting to do it. It just so happens he's moving that particular week. We are going to be having Bill Sinkevich coming on the show. Uh, that's Wednesday, the 13th of May. Um, it's just going to be great. It's just going to be fantastic. I didn't realize Leonard was situated next to a monorail service. I didn't realize I, it's a, a sound. I do apologize. I think it might be the laptop. Good projects. Bill Sinkevich is going to be coming on the show. That's Wednesday, 13th of May. Like I say, it's got an asterisk next to it. It's hard penciled. Because like I say, he was wanting to um, move house. Um, and he was wanting to do He's scheduled it for around this time of the year. Except the lockdown has happened. So it's been kind of 
is being stuck. So he is wanting to move. Um, if it all gets sorted, we'll be having Wilson Kevich on the show. If something really happens, which I'm cross your fingers, best of luck to us all. We may be having another guest on that show. Yes, we may be sharing Bill Sienkiewicz, but it's with somebody I think, if we got the both on, it would be an amazing show. Watch this, watch this space. Sunday the 17th of May is going to be an interesting one. It's going to be an SDCC special, San Diego Comic Con, which has cancelled for this year, moving forward in 2021. Um, we've got Rob Sarkovitz, who's going to be joining us. We've got ourselves, Aaron Nabus uh, from the Hall H podcast, is going to be joining us. I'm going to be inviting a couple of others as well. We're going to be basically getting the gang back together. And we are going to have a chat about San Diego Comic Con. I know that the, the laptop's screaming, and it's probably the fans. I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Okay, I'll make it quick then. Um, so, San Diego Comic Con special, uh, Wednesday, the 20th of May. Donnie Cates and Megan Hutchinson is going to be joining us. Can you see the grin on my face? The guest list we've got is incredible. To be announced on the 17th of May, uh, sorry, the 27th of May, um, we've got ourselves the week after Ross Burlingame, uh, Russ Burlingame, who's going to be joining us. Basically, we've got some great guests on the way. Um, and I want a laptop which can handle it and not end up screaming as it is at this point. So, yeah, I need a laptop. If, that, if anyone's got a decent laptop they can sell me, I'll buy a decent laptop. I'll, I'll yeah. Uh, but, it, yeah, I mean, Into the Blue Mister is saying, um, geez, May is going to be a cracking month, absolutely. Uh, Omar Hassa, uh, why is the laptop screaming? Uh, Andrew English, we can't see it, but there is a pint uh, next to it. It's crying out for help. I'm keeping this well away, because if I spill this over the wife's laptop, I'm a dead man. May is going to be an amazing month for the show. Um, we're going to do our best to uh, get uh, more of those dates filled. Um, I've still got some people that have been a little cagey, and hopefully we'll get them on as soon as we can. But it's going to be a, an interesting month with some really great guests. The next one, this Wednesday, 29th of April, Billy Tukey uh, featuring Fraser Campbell, who's going to come on and talk about his um, uh, Kickstarter. is absolutely cool. So there we go. Thank you very much indeed for watching. Take care. Enjoy the rest of your Sunday. And for myself, um, we'll see you down the line. It's going to be a fun month, is this? Like, subscribe, hit notifications. We're back again on Wednesday with another Talking Fun. A cup of tea management Sunday. Me to you. Take care.